Hello, Oasis. How's it going? Hey, we are in week two of our series, Villains of the Bible, and we are looking at real people who made real mistakes, yet even in the middle of it, God still brings beauty from brokenness. So my name is Emily, and a lot of you probably know that I am from Kansas. It's like my main personality trait. I just tell everybody everywhere that I am from Kansas. And the past few years, I have lived all over in a lot of different states. And it's very fun meeting people and they ask me where I'm from. I'm like, yeah, I'm from Kansas, 50 miles like west of Kansas City, go Chiefs, sorry. And but usually what happens, they, they start talking to me and they're like, man, I am so sorry for you. That's a terrible state. It's so flat and ugly. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa. And I, I just get really confused when I hear these things because where I grew up, it was not flat. It was not the most amazing, <laughs> but it wasn't flat. But in 2003, this guy did a study and he decided to measure a pancake. And then he went and measured Kansas and found out that they're pretty much exactly the same. They're both pretty flat. And this created this story in which Kansas is as flat as a horizontal line. And so when I meet these people and they know this study, they're like, yeah, it, it, it's just as flat as a pancake. It's ugly. And I think you guys get it too, because like you live in South Dakota, you know it's not the most beautiful place in the world. But when I meet these people, I'm really confused. And I have a map I want to show you. So I would really just like to point out with you real quick, hills, 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 hills. Aquesta is a type of hill. And now what I'm saying is that they're not the Black Hills, okay? They, they are not the Black Hills. But my state is not as flat as a horizontal line. Yeah, the blue section, that is as flat as a horizontal line. But these other areas, 60% of my state is not as flat as a horizontal line. But people talk to me and they're like, it was ugly. And I'm just confused because it's not flat everywhere in the state. And to drive through Kansas, you have to drive through all the hills. And I don't get it. But by the time you reach the Kansas border, you have already determined that it's gonna be flat and it's gonna be boring and it's gonna be ugly. And so even when you're driving through the state and you see hills, it doesn't click because all you have done is convinced yourself that you are only going to see things that were flat. And it's okay, I forgive you. I won't hold it against you. But tonight our, our villain is kind of the same. They blind themselves from the truth of who God is. They, they read the word, but interpret it in a way that's just a smidge wrong. And over time, it creates this huge blindness into who God is. And our villains tonight are the Pharisees. The Pharisees arose in this period between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's about this 400 year span. And it's this time where God didn't send a prophet to speak. And it's why we don't have any books of the Bible from this because there was no prophet that could communicate what God was speaking because God was silent. The people of God, they were spread across the Middle East but the place of worship was in Jerusalem. This is where the temple was. Jerusalem and the temple is the place where you'd go to be cleansed from your sin. It's the place you would go to hear God's word being preached 
and hear it interpreted and applied to your life. It's the place where you would go if you had a really big question. It's the place you would go if you needed spiritual guidance. You'd go to Jerusalem. So what do you do? If you don't live in Jerusalem and you don't have a car and you need help, what do you do if you've sinned and you wanna be cleansed from your sin, but you live miles and miles away from Jerusalem? You see, this group called the Pharisees, they saw this. They saw this need and they saw this depravity and they said, we need to change it because God's word is powerful and we long to see transformed communities that follow what his word says. And so the Pharisees are a social class that taught God's word and established localized communities of worship. The Pharisees redefined worship and said, it doesn't have to happen just at the temple. It can happen where you are. But they also knew the power of community and the power of gathering. So they created what's called a synagogue. It's a lot like the local church. And so in all of these Jewish towns and villages, you would have a local synagogue where you could go and hear God's word being preached. You could go and sing songs and hymns of praise with your community. The Pharisees had a beautiful vision for what God's people could be when they had the right resources to follow him. And so when we, we think of the Pharisees, it's kind of this negative connotation because when we look at the Old Testament, Jesus really does not say anything positive. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them blind. So how is it that the people that brought such beauty to the Jews became the people that were corrupt? What happened? Where did the Pharisees get it wrong? To answer that question, we're gonna dive into Mark chapter three. And as you turn there, I'm gonna explain how we've gotten to Mark chapter three. Mark chapter one is where Jesus is introduced. His ministry begins. He's been healing people and restoring people and the communities that see Jesus doing this are amazed and they start chit-chatting about it. And soon, sooner or later, this chit-chat is now reaching the Pharisees where we arrive in chapter two. So Jesus is doing the same thing, healing people, restoring people. But now the Pharisees are watching and you would think that these people who long to see God's people transformed would be so excited that Jesus has come, but they're not, they're upset. And by the time we get to chapter three, they are very, very, very unhappy about what Jesus is doing. So join me in verse one. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a, a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. In just three chapters, the Pharisees' hate of Jesus is so much that they will spend the rest of the gospels finding a way to kill him. It only took three chapters. What happened 
to these people. God's desire has always been to dwell with humanity. And so he gave us his word. He gave us the Old Testament, he gave us the prophets. And at this point, this was the guidebook of how the people of God were to live. This is why the Pharisees came because they were passionate about seeing their people walk in obedience. But the Pharisees knew, as we also know, that it's hard. Like there's a lot of things that we're asked to do in here and it's hard. And so they made a plan. There's about 613 laws in the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees created what's called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is an addition of oral laws that were added to the New Testament. The Mishnah sought to help provide clarity on when you were fulfilling a law and when you were breaking a law. So they would say, the Sabbath, that's one of your laws. So we'd put the Sabbath here and the Mishnah would say, all right, here's everything you need to know about the Sabbath. This is what you can do. Apparently on the Sabbath, you can't walk a half mile from your house. You can't carry an object from your house outside to a person in need. These things were considered work and the Mishnah explained all of the things you could or could not do on the Sabbath. The Mishnah also explained what you could do if you accidentally stole from someone or if someone stole from you. For every law that you might have, let's see, the laws about all the festivals we're supposed to throw, let's add that one there. Um, let's see here, murder, this one's pretty short. It's pretty self-explanatory, just don't kill someone. Um, any type of disease you might have in your community, the Mishnah laid all of it out and sooner or later, these are just like four of the laws. The people of God are walking around with 613 laws trying to figure out what to do. And by the time Jesus arrives on scene, he sees the Jews experiencing this corruption of religion. He sees the Jews not only carrying 613 laws on their back, but the countless pages that the Pharisees were enforcing on them. And Jesus is grieved and he is disappointed because the people that were to shepherd his flock have led them astray. The Pharisees craved perfection over transformation. They would look at the people of God and instead of seeing the ways that they could be transformed by obedience, they saw the ways that they weren't living up. Obedience for the Pharisees stemmed from a drive to be exalted for their acts rather than to meet with God and to be changed by God through the acts. And if you don't know God, please know that this is not how his kingdom works. Obedience is not seeking to do works for God. Obedience is allowing God to change us in the process of our works. God's desire was to be with you and to dwell with you. And when we are obedient, it is through those acts where God is with us and where God changes us. And this is where the Pharisees got it wrong. This is why Mark three is ugly. This is why the Pharisees don't like Jesus because Jesus was the person who would look into the crowd and would see the, see the one that is as far away as they could be from perfecting all of this. And Jesus would go and sit with them. Jesus would go have dinner with them. 
And the Pharisees would look at Jesus and think that he is unholy, that he is unclean because he is around such a sinner. But Jesus redefined what worship meant and what obedience meant. And in Mark 3, Jesus is saying, the law was only ever about two things, not 613 and not whatever you added to it. The law was only about loving God and loving others. And when Jesus healed the man, Jesus was showing his love to him and Jesus fulfilled the law of the Sabbath. The Pharisees are religious scholars whose stubborn hearts blind them from seeing who God truly is. And rather than seeing Jesus and saying, hey, maybe, maybe we got it wrong. They see Jesus and say, I want to stick to my tradition that I've had for 400 years that has given me a place of status. These are our Pharisees. These are our villains tonight. But the question is, how does Jesus respond? How does he bring beauty from this? And to answer that question, we need to turn to Mark chapter eight. And so go ahead in your Bibles, if you have it, turn to Mark chapter eight. And I, I wanna to explain to you real quick. Mark chapter one through eight is all trying to ask one question. When your Bible was written, there weren't chapter numbers, there weren't verse numbers, it was all together. And so Mark chapter one through eight is one section of the book of Mark that is asking the question, do you know who Jesus is? Mark isn't asking, do you know if you went to Cool Beans, could you pick out Jesus in the tables and say hi to him? Mark isn't asking, do you, do you know, or could you tell me any random story about how Jesus healed a person? Mark is saying, do you know in the core of your being that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you know that? Do you know that he is the son of God? Do you know that he is the one that the law and the prophets told about Yet somehow the Pharisees missed it when they studied God's word. Do you know to the core of your being that Jesus is the son of God? And this is a connecting thread for all of Mark chapter eight. So we're gonna be starting in verse six. Jesus um, is performing another feeding miracle. And we read in verse six that he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He deeply sighed and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. All right, so hold up. Jesus just feeds 4,000 people and the Pharisees have the audacity to say, hey, Jesus, I know you just performed a miracle, but could you prove with a sign from heaven? That, oh my goodness, that does not make any sense whatsoever. Imagine, you're at kickoff last week. We had about 700 of you here at kickoff and we have an amazing crew of volunteers that make dinner for you. Imagine what would happen. You show up to kickoff and the only food they had with them was a pound of chicken and a box of rice. Now look at everybody in this room. You know that's crazy. But imagine you came to kickoff and our volunteers only had a pound of chicken and a box of rice, yet they still were able to serve that same exact meal that was amazing. 
If that happened, I would be praising God because that would be a miracle and that would be a sign of God. Now imagine that this is happening for 4,000 people. That's, that's even crazier. Now imagine that this is the second time that Jesus has done this. And the Pharisees are here asking Jesus for a sign. Like that wasn't enough. And Jesus, he sighs and he is disappointed and he is grieved. And the Pharisees, man, they want Jesus to prove who he is, but Jesus refuses. And when I first read this, I kind of started asking God this question. I was like, God, why would you prevent the Pharisees from knowing who you are? That's not the question we should be asking though because God's not preventing them from knowing who he is. The Pharisees are preventing themselves from knowing who God is. The Pharisees have hardened their hearts so much that they are unwilling to see what is right in front of them. The Pharisees studied every single word of the Old Testament, the same scriptures that tell us who Jesus will be. And yet as Jesus has walked among them, as he has freed the captives, given sight to the blind, as he has done a ton of miracles, they still cannot recognize that he is the son of God. Do you know who Jesus is? In the core of your being, do you know that he is the son of God? Our story continues in verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Jesus is trying to use his conversation with the Pharisees as a teaching device with his disciples. But the disciples, they're, they're not tracking. But Jesus is saying, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. I don't know how many of you, I don't know how many of you in the room bake. There's this huge, huge new trend now of baking all of your bread, but yeast, when you add it to dough, causes the whole glob of dough to rise. All right, so you can't just put a tiny bit of yeast and expect that tiny bit of bread to rise. If you put the tiny bit of yeast on it, the whole thing's gonna rise. And this is what Jesus is saying. And he's comparing it to spiritual blindness. He's saying, if you have a spot in your life in which you're not in full alignment with God, it doesn't just affect that little spot. It actually will grow to affect your entire life. And he's explaining this in the life of the Pharisees. He says, what started as a misinterpretation of scripture somehow grew into all of this. It grew into corruption. It grew into people that put a heavy yoke on those that wanted to worship God. And it started as something small and it expanded into something huge. 
But we also see in this conversation that spiritual blindness is not just limited to the Pharisees, the disciples are following into it as well. The Pharisees, they know every single word about God, but they do not recognize or understand the God that is with them. The disciples, they know who Jesus is, but they do not understand his true identity. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know in the core of your being that he is the son of God? You see, blind spots are dangerous because they grow in the dark. And maybe your blind spot is that group of friends. I think we kind of all have that group of friends that are the fun friends, but you know you're not supposed to go to them for advice because they're probably not the best and they might not be Christian. And their advice not always be in line with what God is asking of us, but they're really, really fun and you love hanging out with them. Blindness kind of starts like this. It kind of starts when they offer you advice and rather than hearing it, you choose to listen to it and try it. And then something else arises and you keep listening and you keep trying new things and over and over, you start hanging out with them more and, and soaking in more of the things they say and start doing the things they do that you know aren't Christ-like. And sooner or later, you look more like them than you look like Jesus. For me, one of my blind spots is conflict. I'm an Enneagram nine, and so I don't do conflict at all. And it's not a great system, but one of my blind spots is that I'm hurt, I'm betrayed. And so I say, all right, I'll just keep it all in and put on a smile. But when I push off that conversation, when I push off dealing with the conflict, I start harboring resentment. I harbor a grudge. And then it becomes gossip. And then it becomes belittling someone else. And then it becomes actually saying mean things about them. Our blind spots, though, they start all the way over here and they seem really small and really far away. They impact all of who we are. Blind spots are dangerous because they grow in the dark. What is your blind spot? And I'll ask it a different way. Do you know that Jesus is the son of God? Do you know in the core of your being that he is who he says he is? Then what in your life keeps you from understanding who he is? What's the one thing, what's that one piece of your heart that you don't want to fully align with him? That's your blind spot. In verse 22, our story continues. It says, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So let's recap. The Pharisees know every single word there is to know about God, yet they cannot recognize that God is in front of them. The disciples have lived with Jesus, but they don't understand that Jesus is the son of God. But the blind man who cannot see is the one who knows that Jesus is who he says he is. So back in November, I broke my ice scraper. 
And I've been using my backup ice scraper and it's not great. Like you try and scrape it and it doesn't scrape anything off. It just looks like a cat got angry at your windshield. And I'm like, you know what, it's fine. I don't need the luxury of having a working ice scraper. So January hits and I don't know if you know what happened in January, but it was incredibly cold and it snowed. And I remember I go out to my car and I'm just standing there in like negative temps with a couple inches of snow on my car. And I'm just like, I did this to myself. I didn't want to go to Walmart. I didn't want, when I was at Walmart, I didn't want to walk to the auto section because it felt really, really far away. And I made all of these excuses of why I didn't want a new ice scraper. But it wasn't until that morning when my hands were freezing and I honestly don't know how they didn't fall off that I realized, no, I actually do need a new ice scraper. And so I go to Walmart and you know, I'm just trying to find a normal ice scraper but all they have, all they have is this guy. This is a big kahuna. And uh, as you can see, I still don't know how it works. Um, but I'm pretty sure this thing is meant for a semi truck. But oh, this is the cool part. Yeah. Guys, this is, this is wider than my back seat. This is meant for a semi truck. I drive a Toyota Camry. All right. And so a couple days later, it snows and it's still negative tense. And I go out to my car and I'm just like brushing it off. And it took seconds. And I got back inside the house and I was like, my hands aren't cold. My windshield is clean. And I started thinking about all the things that I missed out on because I wouldn't go to Walmart and get big kahuna. I just. <laughs> You know, it, really, it was like 10 bucks, it was worth it. And I was just like, why, why, why didn't I just go get it sooner? And I got stuck in the chore of going to Walmart rather than seeing that I was in need of something so I could drive safely. And some of us were, were trying to cure blindness on our own. And so we, we have the backup ice scraper in our car. We have peewee over here and we're trying to scrape off everything, but we can't reach the middle of the windshield unless you have long arms. I don't have long arms, but we're trying to like reach that middle spot and we're trying to get the snow off, but this cannot keep up with what's happening. But we know that, we know that this other ice scraper is at Walmart, but we don't want to get out in the cold. It's too much of a chore. And so we keep using this one that's not working, even though we convince ourselves it is. Sometimes I get lost in the chore of doing things for God. I get lost in the chore of reading my Bible. I get lost in the chore of having to pray. I get lost in the chore of coming to church and coming to Oasis. I get lost in the chore of coming to small group and doing all of these things. But can I let you in on some inside information? It was never about the chore. It was never about the chore. It was never about how many Bible verses you read. It was about the fact that you heard from God. It was never about how many times you showed up to Oasis last semester. It wasn't about your perfect attendance. It was about the fact that you gathered with other people and worshiped God. It was never about how many minutes you spent in prayer or how cool the words sounded when you prayed them. It was about coming into God's presence and this is what Jesus does. He says, I didn't come, I didn't come to enforce the yoke on you. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he asked us to put all of this away. And this is what he does for the blind man. He puts it all 
all away. And Jesus is telling us that we don't have to live with those blind spots. We don't have to live with them, but we have to bring them to Jesus. We have to surrender peewee here. And we have to allow Jesus to, we have to receive from Jesus what he can give us. We have access to the better ice scraper, but we gotta be willing to go to Jesus first and receive it. So, so how do all these stories connect? How do, how do the Pharisees connect? How do the blind man connect? How did the disciples connect? It's this, we don't have to live with the blind spots. And some of you in here tonight, there's something in your life, there's something in your heart, and you do not wanna give, give it over to God. Your heart is hardened. And I'm asking tonight, would you, would you just, just stop? Please, would you give Jesus a chance? Some of you in here tonight, maybe you know that something isn't in alignment, but you can't name it. You're like the disciples, you need someone to point it out to you. You need the help of community. So find them, find your people. And some of you in here tonight, you're like the blind man and you know that you're blind. You know that there's something in your life that is not in alignment with God. And I am asking, will you lay down your ice scraper and go to Jesus? Our story continues in verse 27. He says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? Some replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. This is the moment where the story turns into beauty. This is the moment because Peter knows in every deep corner of his body and in his soul that Jesus is the Messiah that Jesus is who he says he is throughout all of scripture, that this is him. This is where the brokenness turns to beauty because guess what? God is more powerful than a corrupt religious system. God speaks and provides truth and he provides healing. And this is what he is doing with Peter. Peter who was raised in this corrupt Jewish system. God was still there and God was still speaking and God is still speaking in his word. And this is the good news. And I am asking you again, do you know who God is? Do you know that he is who he says he is? Because this is not a one-time thing. You don't just decide tonight, all right, God, you are who you say you are. You say tonight, all right, God, you are who you say you are. And I'm going to commit to knowing you. And do you wanna know how we know who God is? We go to his word. And I know I just preached the whole message on how the Pharisees didn't read God's word right. And it seems kind of funny, but we come to his word. And it's not about how many Bible verses you read. It is not about whether or not you understood the big word that Paul wrote because they're confusing. It's about, are you going to come and learn who God is? Are you going to come and choose to be changed by his grace? Are you gonna hear his voice through the spirit? Do you know who God is? And some of you, it still feels like a chore. And I'm asking you tonight, will you trade your chore for his presence? Will you trade the chore of all the things you should be doing? And will you trade it for meeting with him? Let's pray.